Yeah, I mean, it sounds a little cliche, but it was more for me than it was for him. You know, I mean, I, I'm a huge advocate of like, gosh, you have so much mental capacity each day. Don't spend it on things that you can't change. And like, I forgave him. If he ever called me and needed help, I would help him, but I would never put myself in that situation again. That was Brandon Hess on this week's episode of the People of Veterinary Medicine podcast. The People of Veterinary Medicine, powered by Luca Veterinary Data Security. Greetings, DVMs, practice managers, vet techs, support staff, veterinary consultants, and podcast enthusiasts. Welcome or welcome back. In this week's episode, we talk with Brandon Hess, and I was really excited to do this episode as Brandon is one of those guys that, again, you kind of just see as a mover and shaker in the industry, Um, somebody that I've always kind of looked up to just as far as like things that I would like to accomplish in the industry, and I really love teaching and, and speaking and being able to hopefully provide value back to practices, and so Brandon is always one of those people who's been doing it and he's always been just the nicest guy and I had a chance to work with him in his practice for a while and he has this really amazing practice manager Brittany um, so both just really amazing people and in this episode we really get into a lot of kind of more of the actual compassion side of vet med and I know that the term compassion fatigue is this is this Uh, kind of very charged term, but we actually talk about Brandon and how he actually had a staff member uh, take their life and and how that came about. And we really just get into, again, it always comes back to the people. And I think, again, that's why the name of this podcast, The People of Veterinary Medicine, is so important, is that it, it really is about the people at the end of the day. And Brandon made a really great state, uh, statement that, you know, if, you're, if your people are successful and, and happy, then your business will be successful and happy, not the other way around. And so, or again, he also said something about the bottom-up approach in leadership. And I think these are really great topics. And again, it was really um, an honor to learn more about Brandon and his story and how he got involved in vet med. And I really think that you're really going to enjoy this episode and learning more about Brandon if you don't know who he is and you haven't worked with him uh, in the past. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. But first, this episode is brought to you by Luca Veterinary Data Security, where our mission is to help veterinary practice owners everywhere realize the value of their data and help them take the necessary steps to protect it. So if you need help protect data in your practice, the first thing you can do is go to luca.vet and download our five simple steps to protect your practice ebook, which is free. So again, go to www.luca.vet and look for our five simple steps to start protecting your practice. Thank you for being here and thank you for taking time out of my day, out of my day, out of your day. <laughs> Total brain fart there. Thanks for taking yeah, time out of my day too. <laughs> yeah, no, taking time out of your day to spend time with me. I uh, really appreciate it. It's, uh, it's, it truly is an honor and I'm really looking forward to kind of digging in a little bit more. And, you know, I already know a decent amount about you, but I feel like there's still so many layers to the onion and uh, can't wait to figure it out, you know, to learn more. So one question I always like to start with is, you know, how did you get involved in vet med and what, what, what brought you into the industry as a whole? 
Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a weird kind of process because my formal education was in psychology. So I got I got my bachelor's in psychology, and then um, you know right after graduating, I uh, got this little dachshund. Um, and I was your typical non-compliant owner, so I um, you know I didn't get vaccines. I had no idea how to take care of him, and subsequently he got parvo. So uh, I called my parents and um, asked them to max out their credit card to save this little wiener dog that I could have saved for, you know, a uh, cost of a few vaccines. And uh, they did. And I fell in love with veterinary medicine. So uh, I fell in love with the emergency clinic that I took him to. And um, of course, he survived because bad dogs survive everything. You know, Jack's, Jack Russell's dachshunds, you know, all those breeds just can't, can't kill them. Um, so after that, uh, I called my parents back and said, Hey, thanks for maxing out that credit card. Now I'm going to take a huge pay cut and get the veterinary medicine. Cause I fell in love with it. So I applied to the emergency clinic that I took him to. Um, and just, yeah, since then it's just been kind of, uh, scratching and clawing my way through the industry, through all different positions. And, uh, um, it's kind of come full circle cause now I'm actually using my psychology degree and a lot of consulting stuff that I'm doing. So, um, you know, it's kind of bittersweet to, to look back at my parents and say, told you so, like kind of, kind of put it all together. So, uh, so yeah, in a nutshell, that's kind of, that's how I got into it and just started as an entry level assistant at, a, at an ER practice, worked third shift for five years. Um, actually met my wife at that practice and, um, and just kind of been working my way through the industry. So what were you doing before you decided to take this pay cut and get into the vet space? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I I worked retail sales through college, and then once I graduated my psychology degree, I actually I started working with special needs kids. Um, so I was working with a development child development center in Kentucky, and um, um, you know really trying to apply my psychology degree and trying to figure out what I was going to do because I really didn't want to go to grad school. I didn't want to become a therapist. It was um, you know I didn't think that I could do that all day every day and then not take it home with me. Um, which is interesting to see where I'm at now because I'm kind of helping people all day, every day and trying not to take it home with me. Um, so, uh, but yeah, that's what I was doing. And then uh, when my dog got sick, so I uh, went immediately from, from helping special needs kids and uh, applied to that ER practice. Actually, they didn't even call me back when I applied. I just happened to be driving by one day and I saw a car in the parking lot stopped by the manager was there. She gave me a tour of the practice and offered me a job on the spot. And I was like, sure let's let's do it <laughs> so that's awesome yeah. so you were there you were there for five years at the er practice yeah so about five years working third shift um and then i i went from there to a to general practice that did a emergency after hours did 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 third shift there also um so you know i i, I can completely understand the the struggles of third shift and overnight and all that kind of stuff because it's a it's a challenge but i learned so much so how does that then evolve into what you're doing now where you, you know, you're doing a lot of consulting and right. we're up until this year traveling quite a bit. So how does that, how does that yeah. come about? Yeah. So, so I went from um, the, the second practice, the, the daytime ER practice and I went and I managed a very large emergency and specialty practice in Cincinnati where we actually, we won the 2016 AHA specialty practice of the year before I left, which I'm really proud of. It was a huge submission process, a lot of practices through the United States and Canada. And through that, I, I ran into Brenda Tassava. Um, and about that time, she was getting into the social media aspect of veterinary medicine and um, just kept in touch with her. And uh, I actually remember 
in between the, the emergency specialty practice in Cincinnati and the daytime practice, um, she, she interviewed me for one of our clients. And, and one of the first questions she asked me is, so where do you see yourself in 10 years? And I actually remember distinctly saying, I want your job. Like, I'd love to be doing what you're doing. So her and I joke all the time that it's been kind of a, it's been kind of a five-year working interview because, I, you know, she interviewed me for a job that she was hiring for. I ended up not taking that, but um, we kept in touch. And, um, you know, about the time that I was reaching the peak of my burnout as a, as a manager of a very large emergency, especially practice, um, you know, she reached out to me and she was looking to expand. And, um, you know, I, I jumped on with her and, and she challenged me to use my psychology degree with compassion, fatigue and, and all that stuff. So that's, that's how I got into consulting, just really networking, which I preach a lot to, to veterinary professionals, you know, networking is so incredibly important. Um, you know, in addition to constantly trying to, to learn, there's always something to learn. So you said something interesting there. You said the peak, reaching the peak of your burnout. Yeah. Maybe get into that a little bit. I mean, what, what, was, what was that like? I mean, what led to this burnout? You said it was like a peak. So it was, must have been like kind of a slow burn to just this ultimately to the, to the top. And then it was just downhill from there. Yeah. So since I entered consulting and started, you know, learning about compassion fatigue and becoming a certified compassion fatigue professional, you know, I'm actually, I've been able to look back and kind of appreciate the progression that happened. You know, and really that's what burnout is. It's kind of a gradual progression. Um, just kind of starts with compassion fatigue typically for, for us in veterinary medicine. And then it turns into burnout. I, I typically will call it compassion fatigue induced burnout, but you know, my process to get there, I actually, <clears throat> I haven't talked about a whole lot. I actually wrote an article about it about a year ago because it's, it's a little little challenging to, to talk about. But, um, you know, not only was I managing a 180-employee practice, 24-7, 365, um, I actually had an employee that took their life um, right before I hit the peak of my burnout. So so I, I talk about that a little bit in my suicide awareness and, and prevention classes. But, you know, to have to, you know, go through that process and, and talk to my staff about it and help them through that process. And I had actually terminated that employee about a week prior uh, to them doing that and uh, you know, to go through that process myself. So, you know, as a consultant, I'm able to put all of that stuff together and, and uh, you know, I think it's, it's an uncomfortable topic and actually what a, what a important time to, to bring it up because it's actually suicide awareness month. Um, uh, September is the suicide awareness week is in, in September. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's an important topic to talk about, but that, you know, all of that stuff together really made me hit my peak of burnout. And I was actually questioning whether I wanted to, to stay in the industry or not, you know? Yeah. So how, you know, you mentioned another thing you said, you know, how do I not, you know, take my work home with me? And I think that's one conversation that we talk about a lot is this idea, you know, I've, I tell this story a lot, but I, I think, you know, so I'm going to, but I'm going to tell it again. Uh, yeah. Like when with, I had two dogs and right before WVC this year, I ended up having to put one down and it was the first time I've really had to make that decision myself. Right. Yeah. Um, and the reason I bring that up and what makes me think about that is that there was a, you know, as I listened to your story and you talk about this employee who took their, you know, you, you know, you basically fired them right before a week before this happens. And then, you know, thinking about that, I immediately thought like, oh, 
you know, how do you not take that home with you? You know, like that, you know, at the time, you know, it's, it's like, oh, it's the best for the practice is what's what we have to do. But then something major happens. And then in hindsight, you look back and you're like, oh, why did I make this decision? Why did I do that? What, how could I have done better? And I thought about the same thing with uh, my dog, you know, and it was like, when we put him down, I started going through in being the first time I really had had to pull that trigger, right? Really making right. the decision to end right. a life of another living creature. Right. And you start to think back and you're like, Oh, that time I got really mad at you or that time I was frustrated right. because you had cancer and you know, you, you have a hard time controlling your, 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 uh, you know, you have cancer in your bladder and so you have a hard time controlling your, you know, not peeing all the place. And so you start running right. through all these stories in your head and it, it, it was, uh, is a tough thing to deal with. So how did you manage, like, how did you manage that? And how did you not take that home with yourself? I mean, one of the, one of the biggest challenges as people in veterinary medicine is we're caregivers. Like we're, we take care of other people. And in these instances, you actually have to reverse that. You have to take care of yourself and learn this all kind of on the fly through this, these processes. And even applying it to, to your situation, you you almost have to look back and forgive yourself a little bit and, and, and talk about it, you know, to, to that's why therapy, you know, people say therapy works because it really does. And, and a lot of it's just talking it through, you know, kind of getting it off your chest and, and forgiving yourself and, and looking back and saying, you know, the, the decisions that I made and, and my actions were, were right in the moment. Um, and it's easy to look back and beat myself up over it, but you know, you can't, can't change the past you can't tell the future so um you know i think i think it's it's going you know allowing yourself to go through that process and not fighting it um because fighting it uh is actually you know worse than than just kind of going through it and it prolongs the the grieving process which you know we both went through respectively in our in our situations and um you know and and it kind of depends on on when you grieve um you know and in my situation, I grieved about a month after everything happened because I was too busy taking care of everybody else that I didn't go through my process. And, you know, when I needed help, I asked for help. And I think that's another barrier that a lot of people run into is, you know, when, when they're struggling, they don't ask for help. They can identify, crap, I'm struggling and I need help. But whether it's pride or stigma or whatever it may be, you know, people don't ask for help. And I, and, I, and I can't say that I would still be in this industry if I didn't ask for help when I needed it, um, you know. So that, that's, a, that's a great question. So I'm a part of a, um, a new, it's a newer nonprofit. It's called uh, Care for the Healer. And it's, do you know Dr. Kassara Andre? She runs veterancannabis.org. Um, truly an amazing, amazing person. I mean, when I talk to people about, you know, the the reason that, you know, I fell in love with this industry as the people and she's one of them. I mean, she, she is truly amazing. And, and I can't thank her enough for the work that she helped me with cash, you know, back to my story with my dog that we lost, you know, my GP gave us uh, four weeks and we turned it into basically two years and he had a great quality life. And it wasn't without the help of her and a bunch of other amazing people. But um, with that being said, she has started this project called care for the healer. And the idea is to help stop the upstream effect of what happens to when people get to the point where they need the services of not one more vet. Right. So it's almost like for lack of a better term, it's like, how do we put not one more vet out of business? You know, I mean, I don't think not one more vets really in business and maybe it's kind of a crappy way to put it, but 
you know, it's like, how do we even stop that upstream effect? Right. And so you had right. talked about, you know, you realized that you potentially needed help. So how did you, how did you come to that realization? Was there somebody in your life that made you realize that, Hey, you probably need help with this. How did, how did that pivot happen? How did, how did you make that work? Yeah. So I'm, my wife was really huge in, the, in this process and she knows me well and she knows how I grieve and she knows, you know, that, that I typically will take care of those around me before I ever allow myself to grieve. Um, but, you know, one thing that I've worked on a lot is self-awareness, uh, you know, be, being able to recognize in myself um, what's happening and why it's happening. You know, it's emotional intelligence is what people call it. And I, I think that skill set is so incredibly valuable um, because it did allow me to basically say, hey, guys, uh, I don't need help right now. But when I need help, I'm going to ask you. And when I ask you, it's really important that you support me. So I, I kind of, you know, I, I was I had enough forethought to, to, to know there's going to be a point when I need help. I don't need it right now. But let me go ahead and put these things in place so that when I need help, people know what to do. You know, it's, so it's almost like a crisis prevention plan, if you will. And that's one thing that I, that I really encourage practices to put in place, you know, being proactive, not reactive. Um, so I was really just trying to practice what I preach. And, um, you know, because when it, when it hit me, when I needed help, it, I mean, it hit me like right away. And I was, I remember I was sitting at work in my office and I was like, I can't, I can't do this today, you know, and, uh, and I started thinking about things and I started questioning things. And uh, it was about at the point where my staff was in a, a decent position given the circumstances. So I really do think that it's, you know, being proactive and it's, it's self-awareness. You know, you, you say something about a, a crisis response plan and maybe a little bit of shameless self-promotion for myself is one, re- one thing that I, I realized myself is that when it comes to like data and in a, in a practice, you know, how they manage the technology in their right. practice and especially the data and how they protect themselves, no practice has an instant incident response plan, right? The right. response plan is like, I don't know, we just call our IT guy and we hope that everything's going to be good, you know? And it's like, no, you like, you need, it's going to get far worse in that time. Right. And I guess I'm using that analogy because it just makes sense for me, you know, as, as, as I think about data and, and, and cybersecurity is that, you know, we have to find in these situations that are mentally tough on us, we need to have a plan in place so that we say, okay, hey, just start following these steps so we can start mitigating a lot of the potential negative impacts that can come downstream. And if we don't have that in place, then we're going to kind of be up a stream. Right, right. And, and as a profession, we're a terribly reactive profession. Like we wait for something to go wrong. And then you know, I, I remember I was actually at the VHMA conference and I was doing a talk on suicide awareness years ago. Um, and I was sitting at a dinner table and uh, they were talking about, you know, the people that are at the table were talking about what classes they were going to go to the next day. And uh, the person speaking didn't know that I was the one speaking on the suicide topic the next day. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, I thought about going to that suicide awareness talk. But, you know, suicide's not a problem in my practice. <laughs> I just kind of slowly raised my hand. I said, you know, with all due respect, like, you don't want to wait till it happens and do anything about it. That's like saying, you know, I'm, I'm just going to leave my controlled substances on the counter until the DEA shows up or until somebody steals them. And then I'll do something about it. Like, it just doesn't make sense. So, you know, I think we have to, as an industry, we have to put those IT things in place. We have to put these you know, emergency response plans, these OSHA plans, you know, whatever they are, um, because gosh, it's, it's so much more work on the back end if you don't do that. 
you know, I'm not going to lock up these drugs. Well, that's a $25,000 fine. You know, I'm not going to worry about food and drink in the workplace. Well, that's a $13,000 fine. You know, like uh, it, it just, we, and, and it's part of the reason why I have a job as a consultant is because practices wait for something to go wrong and then they call me to try to help them. But, you know, my goal, just like your goal is, is to put systems in place so that you don't have to worry about calling me or you know what to do, you know, when to call me um, to help mitigate as much of the, that um, effect as possible. So, so yeah, proactive, not reactive. That's been kind of a motto of mine for, for a few years. Which, which I find is really interesting because as in it, you know, you mentioned it earlier, you are a non-compliance owner, right? <laughs> so it's like the industry itself has this whole idea of preventative medicine and getting people to kind of comply with what we're trying to do and compliance. I mean, heck, I think Vet Success built their entire business on the idea of around compliance, right? I mean, their reports, a lot of them are around how compliant are your actual customers. Right. Um, and not to, I guess, not to belittle them or say that that's their only thing. I mean, they do a lot of other great tool things right. with their reporting, but I know that that's one of the big things is looking at the, the compliance. But uh, so it's interesting that we as an industry have this, idea of telling our customers to be compliant <laughs> and proactive, but yet we don't take that medicine ourselves. Right. Right. We don't, we certainly don't practice what we preach. And, you know, I think it, I think that boils down to a lot of different aspects of veterinary medicine, even, you know, from a, a leadership standpoint, you know, I always, I always practice, you know, I always preach bottom up leadership versus top down leadership, you know, kind of practice what you preach and, you know, don't, don't put rules in place that you're not willing to follow yourself. And then, and then practices call me and wonder why they have cultural issues or, or, or staff satisfaction issues. Well, I, you know, I think, I think we just summed it up right there, which is, um, you know, we're, we're reactive. We don't practice what we preach. Yeah. So one question, you know, um, one person that's on your staff now that I absolutely love and I think, and it has been amazing, has Anytime I've asked her for help, she has always given me help and, and has always been willing to help me learn. And, and that's Brittany, the practice manager at your practice. Yeah. And she really yeah. is, I mean, she really is amazing. And I can't thank her enough for all the time that she has spent with me and because uh, it's really invaluable. So as I think about, you know, you have this really great, in my perspective, right? This really great and amazing practice manager. Um, how do you look at it now to make sure that she doesn't reach that burnout point? Yeah. So um, it, it, it's interesting because I've, I've made the trans so I was a consultant for two years before I bought into the practice um, and they were actually a consulting client of mine previously. So, you know, as a practice owner, I'm, I'm appreciating the other side of the coin where as a consultant, I say, Hey, here's all these tools and resources. I'll help you implement them. And now I'm having to, kind of flip the other shoe um, sometimes as a practice owner. Um, but, you know, with, with Brittany, you know, I actually, one of her first reviews a few years ago that I did her annual reviews, I, I pulled her timesheets and I was looking at how many hours she was working. And one of her development opportunities was actually to work less. Um, you know, it's a, you know, she was working 60 hours a week and I said, I, I want you no more than 45 on average. Like some weeks are going to work 50. That's great. The other week I want you to work 40. So, you know, not only setting those standards for her, but also practicing what I preach, you know, to, to take vacations, to, to not be here on my days off, but be supportive, you know, have that delicate balance as a practice owner. But I mean, I think, I think as a practice owner, if I work 70 hours a week, 
then how can I expect her not to think that's an expectation of her? You know, because as a leader, people do as you do, not as you say. Um, and I think that's where practice ownership gets a little frustrating because I hear practice owners say, well, why don't, won't they just do this? And my first question is, well, what are you doing, right? Are you doing those same things that they're doing because you're a leader um, and people look up to you and people are going to, um, you know, exemplify what you do. And, um, you know, that's, that's, and, and sometimes that's challenging because sometimes I feel like I'm not doing enough um, because I'm not, you know, putting in those extra, you know, 10 hours or 20 hours or whatever they are. But, you know, in the same regard, taking care of myself right now will help me be able to take care of others for a longer period of time. Um, and that's why, you know, self-care and, and practicing what you preach is, is really, really important. And I slip sometimes, I slip sometimes and I get into bad habits, but that's all part of the process. Yeah. Nobody's perfect. Right. I, I think right. that's the, and even like to make a little bit of a political statement out, out of that is it, it seems that like the politics in our country has come to a place where it's like, we're looking for the Messiah, you know, we're looking for somebody who is perfect, who is blameless, who, and then we're looking to find a person to put them in that place. And it's like, well, don't we realize that everybody has their flaws and um, we can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, but you know, it's like, but we also have to expect that they're not going to be perfect. Yeah. It's this weird, I don't know. It's kind of this weird, weird thing. But you criticize them for not being perfect. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the weird, (laughs) yeah, Yeah, it's so weird, but um, you know what I, what I really loved what you said there is people do as you do. And as I look back at, you know, previous jobs and previous careers, you know, I was at an organization where we had this position where we were constantly talking about, well, why isn't it working? Why isn't it working? Why isn't it working? You know, why are we constantly having to go through people? Why aren't they buying into our value set? Why aren't they doing all these things? And then it wasn't until I left that I realized I kind of looked back and I was like, you know, and especially now as I look back on, on previous roles and things that I've done, and how I, how can I, how can I improve and how can I do things differently as I look to grow the company and have my own staff and that sort of thing. And I realized it very much was this idea that people do as you do. And it didn't matter how much I preached um, in kind of like a, manager, a managerial role or the things that I said, it, like the owner of the company was doing stuff. It, it was everybody was exemplifying the, the owner and what he was right. doing and how he was living and how he was working. And we didn't see that. And yeah, so it's really interesting to hear you say that because I really see how that works. And, how, and I realized that, you know, we, in this one position, we were turning, you know, maybe six months a year, this person, what are wow. we doing? What's wrong? Why aren't we fixing this? And it's like, well, it's not the person it's the, it's right. the people, right? Like it's us. It's, right. it's our right. problem. It's not theirs. And that's, you know, going back to us talking a little bit about emotional intelligence. That's why I think that's one of the most valuable soft skills that anybody can have is that level of self-awareness and, you know, asking for feedback, being open to criticism and, you know, realizing that even as a practice owner, you always have to grow. Um, and I, I hate this mindset of, well, this is the way we always done it. I hate that. That's like one of the worst phrases. And I was, <clears throat> I was listening to a presentation one time and somebody said it perfectly. They said, what got you here won't get you there. Um, and I love that saying because I, I say it all the time here because our practice has been open for 50 years. Um, and a lot of things that we do is still pretty antiquated and not up to par with, with the industry. And I always catch myself saying, you know, just because it's always worked doesn't mean it's going to get us to where we want to be. So always being willing to 
be open to criticism and change. And, you know, because as a, as an owner or as a leader, if you're willing to do that, then you're kind of setting uh, unset expectation for those that look up to you that they should be doing the same thing. Are you familiar with Dr. uh, Joe Despenenza? He wrote this. So he's like a, he's in like the the psychology space and he uh, he's in, he's a professor at a university in Hawaii and then he does a lot of speaking, but he's wrote, written a lot of books. But what made me think about it is, I mean, it's just, I just finished this book by him called breaking the habit of being yourself. And he really looks at different ways of, I think what made me think about that is you talked about, you know, what got you here is not going to get you where you want to go, you know? And he talks a lot about the idea of understanding the bad habits or the things that we don't like about ourselves. But then he really kind of gets into the science of why we kind of always fall back into these traps. And then he provides some really easy tools to allow you to recognize when you're in those, you know, in those positions, like, you know, say you're like, you know, like one thing I really wanted to work on personally in in my personal growth is, you know, working on not being so hasty, you know, like working on being aggressively patient and this idea of, uh, slowing down a little bit. And so whenever I would catch myself being a bit hasty, I would be like, up, oh, change, you know, like, and it's right. just this simple word of change in really looking at understanding what you're doing now that you think could be better and being conscious about that and then rewiring your thoughts and, and always trying to improve. But I think what the idea, like what you said, is that it's always going to change, right? So I may be able to break this right. habit of being my old self and get better but I may develop a new habit that then I have to work on kind of being more conscious and aware of. Right. Right. And, and I think, you know, tying all this together, cause it's really interesting how it's all tying together, you know, going back to the idea of perfectionism, like you have to get rid of that expectation of perfectionism because, you know, as a perfectionist, if I embrace the idea that I'm doing something wrong or I need to change or heaven forbid, I need help because I'm struggling. Right. That all says I'm not perfect. Right. So, so, you know, this, this idea as veterinary professionals, we have to be perfect, I think is one of the worst things that we can, because then you're not giving yourself permission to do something wrong and you're certainly not giving yourself permission to change. Um, so I, I love that. And, and I mean, I agree. And I actually read an article about how those moments that you can catch yourself in bad habits and change it. Like you said, that word change, you know, it actually does rewire your brain and that's how you get change. Um, So, uh, you know, whether it's conflict or, you know, being in the moment and like you said, uh, wanting to be hasty or make a hasty decision or say something that you probably shouldn't say, um, you know, those moments are what really rewires your, your behavior change. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is, you know, how you mentioned this idea of like kind of a bottom up leadership. How can we take that idea of constant growth and just understanding that we have flaws, but learning that we can always get better. How can we use that approach in this bottom up leadership? So, I mean, some of the best ideas um, have come from my staff and a lot of people need permission to share their ideas. They don't, they're, they're not just out as outgoing or outspoken. Um, so that's the whole idea of bottom up leadership, which is, you know, uh, involving your team in, in the solutions saying, Hey guys, here's a problem uh, that we need to fix. What do you guys think? You know, what do you think we need to change? What do you think we need to do? And you know, the, the kind of aha moment is when you get your staff to come up with a solution that you already had in your head, but now it's their idea. 
and when it's their idea, they're more bought into the process and, and the solution. And, you know, I can't, I can't tell you how many times I've had, you know, team members say, Hey, here's a, here's an idea I have. And I had recommended the same thing six months ago, but now it's their idea. Um, and, uh, and I'm like, yeah, that's great. Let's, let's run with it. Right. I don't say, Hey, I had that same idea. Cause that doesn't matter. What matters is they're in a place where I need them to be. And I want to, I want to foster that. So, you know, I think, I think that engagement, that two-way communication, that, uh, you know, involving the team. Now, now there are times where I have to do top-down management or top-down leadership. And that's when, you know, it's, it's critical for the organization. It's a non-negotiable, um, but those are rare. Those are really rare. Um, and my staff know, because that's not how I usually do things that when I, when I, when I, tap into that that it's it's pretty serious that we need to 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 do as i i say we need to do as a practice owner and i and i found myself through this whole covid thing you know really tapping into that a lot because my staff are lost my clients are lost my management team is lost as to what we need to do we just need to make a decision and pivot pivot and pivot which i feel like that's all i've been doing (laughs) for the last six months you know yeah but at least you're willing to pivot i think you know, as you bring that uh, up, the practices that I have talked with, you know, the ones that have really survived and, you know, they saw a dip, you know, with, with the lockdown of uh, elective surgeries and, you know, in, dent, in, in vet med, it was like, you know, no spayer neuters, no dentals, that sort of thing. And that's a big revenue generator. And, and, and so we, we saw that dip, but I, but most practices that I saw that were willing to immediately pivot and change, um, we're doing well, right? Like we're like, yeah, we're, I mean, revenues we're down a little bit, but other than that, we're really busy because we've embraced this, uh, you know, curbside model and that sort of thing. And actually there's a, uh, when I had a Facebook account for a while, uh, I was a part of this Facebook group called veterinary practice managers United. And it, this guy, Steve shade, who uh, I actually interviewed him for the podcast. A great guy. He, you know, he worked at NASA and then fell in love with the vet med industry and then ended up working. At, he's now a practice manager, uh, at a practice, but he started this Facebook group. And what I noticed is that this group, you also mentioned sometimes people need uh, they need to be given permission to share their ideas. And in right. here in this group, it's like they're given permission to share their ideas. And so as I looked at like, say the VHMA forums and then this group, it's like, as soon as all this stuff was hitting, okay, what is everybody doing? I have this idea. Oh, that's a great idea. And so I saw them embracing curbside before the hot, before the shutdown even happened. And so, and then like a month later, you know, I see on the VHMA forums that people are like, oh, well, you know, what are we, are you guys, what's this curbside thing about? And I'm like, here's a place where people were kind of given permission to be creative right. and uh, share their ideas, like you mentioned. And they were really ahead of the curve. And a lot of them really fared really well during that, you know, that rough couple months. And as I say that the word creative, that's one other thing that I've realized that I think is really important to me and um, allowing yourself to create and grow because if you're not growing you're dying so how is right. it that um you know when you look at your your staff or even when you're consulting in practice and you're looking at this kind of culture that you brought up how can we really embrace the creativity or allow people to grow within a practice when maybe sometimes the opportunities are a little bit more limited right right i i I actually i i was part of that group for a little while the practice managers unite i think you know i think 
the reason why they were so progressive is because th- there were almost no rules into yeah. you know, the ideas <laughs> that can be shared and stuff. And yeah, sometimes yeah. it got a little out of control, but that's, you know, really that's, that's how you get to these, these progressive ideas is you give people a platform to share their, their opinions. You don't make them feel stupid for any ideas that they share and you work through them. And, and the person that's sharing the ideas has to also understand that I may not have the best idea, but I don't know if it's a good idea unless I share it. Right. So it's, and I try to do the same thing in my speaking engagements where, you know, I kind of say at the very beginning, like, Hey, ask questions. No questions are dumb questions. And if you have a question or idea, the chances are somebody has the same question or idea and they're going to be relieved that you, you know, brought that up. Um, so, you know, I think, it's, I think it's all about the, the environment that you create. Uh, and the, really the only way that you get there is to practice it. You know, to do it, to kind of show like, hey, look, no judgment, right? You gave an idea. It wasn't the best idea, but we learned together and uh, we're going to move on, you know? So I think, I think that's why, you know, that, that group is so progressive is because there aren't any really handcuffs to, to what can be, you know, it, it needs to be respectful and it needs to be productive. Right. Um, but you know, it's, it's, uh, it can be the wild west sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Especially though, like if, if anybody, all you have to do, if you want to start a fire is just go in there and type the word chewy. And just see, oh, yeah. <laughs> see, see right. what happens, right? Um, Which is crazy. Have, I mean, have, you, the aisle. Have, have you have you heard how well Chewy's doing through all this pandemic stuff? Like it's oh, it's, I bet amazing. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, they, yeah, they I were losing, losing money forever, and then they got right. more money to lose more money, and then I think COVID hit and everything went online, and that was kind of their springboard. Right. Which, which makes you wonder because I mean, they're still losing money. They're just losing less money. Um, and they're losing like millions and billions of dollars. So, you know, when I, when I started seeing this data, I started questioning, like, why does this business model make sense? Like what's the end game for Chewy? You know, because no practice can survive losing money every single year. Like there's an end game of why you continue to do this. So it, it'll be interesting to see how all this plays out in the next, five or 10 years because there's, there's an end game for Chewy and it's not, I don't think it's selling products. I think it's, I think right. it's more data. I think it's more acquisition mm-hmm. and goal, you know, um, maybe Amazon is going to be a part of that. I, I don't know, but uh, there's obviously, there's a reason they're okay losing that much money every year. Yeah. That's a, you know, that's a great point. And I had a, I had a conversation with somebody else and, not to not to try to put a, a company on you know any companies on blast, but it was like we had this conversation that there are some companies in the vet space right now that offer services to vet clinics that they are not solvent unless they're selling the data on the back end, right? right? So unless they're at, without taking all the data that they're pulling from your practice and then selling that to somebody else who wants to use it, they're not alive today. And you know right. you you say that about Chewy, and I'm like. It's a great point. I mean, we see how, I mean, in a lot of ways, the vet, you know, vet med has, is, is decently recession proof, right? I mean, we saw how well the industry did in this forced shutdown. I mean, if you look back at 2008, we didn't really start to see a hit until I think it was like what 2010 is when things started to kind of downturn a little bit. So yeah, it would be interesting if there are people behind the scenes with Chewy that are saying, well, this is a people, no matter what are spending money here, right. you know, what kind of insights can we get? Cause I mean, data is more valuable than oil these days. Right. 
Right, right. Which you know the 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 recession proofness of of that med and how well Chewy's been doing and other online pharmacies like not just Chewy, one eight hundred pet meds. I'm sure is doing great. Um, but you know, then for practices say they don't want to do their own online pharmacy. Like it, it makes me want to beat my head up against the wall. You know, it's just uh, and and I've been doing a lot of talks on online pharmacy and and why financially it makes sense and why you should be doing it and all this kind of stuff and. Um, some some people still have their heads stuck in the sand, and and uh, you know I guess time will tell on 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 what happens there. Yeah. So one thing that that also made me think about is I was I, I had read this book called The Effective Executive. It's by Peter Druckner. Some have you read that book? Okay. Uh, I've uh, heard of it, but I've never read it. Yeah. So it, it's actually it's a really great read, and I recommend it for everybody. And um, if you're if you're a fan of uh, uh, Tim Ferriss and a lot of the books he reads, it was one of his like top five recommendations. But what I think is interesting about it is that, um, we were talking about this idea of, you know, getting people to share ideas and, you know, you're like, there's nothing better when the staff feels like it was their idea, but really it was yours and they kind of embrace it. But one concept that they talk about in the effective executive is just that really you kind of have to, that no, no effective executive makes a decision without confrontation. And so a lot of times if a, if the team, if a certain team, or maybe if the company's small enough, the company as a whole is going to make a change, a major change or a major shift. A lot of times they will pick somebody to say, okay, you're going to take the other side of it. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't, who wants to take side A and who wants to take side B and we're going to come to the table and we are going to have disagreement before we come to uh, uh, a decision, which I thought was interesting because when you go to law school, they, you know, one thing that they teach you is, you know, as you start to prepare for your like mock, mock trial and, and that sort of stuff is the, you know, one of my professors is like, if understand the other person's case better than you understand yours, right? Because then you'll be able to argue it better. You know, every point that they're going to talk about. And so then when I read the, the effective executive, I was like, that really makes sense. You know, if we can come to the table and we have disagreement we're really going to right. suss out all the ideas and come to what's really going to be best for the organization as a whole. I, I you might think I'm crazy, but I love conflict. Like I, I love conflict because, because like you said, you know, growth comes from conflict and, you know, other ideas come from conflict. And I, I actually, you know, I will thank people after they create a little conflict in the meeting because, you know, it's productive. It's productive if you make it productive, right? I mean, there's, there's another side of that. Um, But, you know, and and then also I always tell my leadership team is we can, we can agree to disagree behind closed doors, but we have to be unified when we go out in front of the team. So it's, you know, it's one thing to have that conflict, but if we can't move forward in a productive way, even if it wasn't my idea or my side of the fence or whatever, then, then really it's, it's useless. But I, I mean, I completely agree. I, I, I love conflict. I love conflict resolution. Um, and I love the, the positive things that come out of conflict, you know, better relationships, you know, client complaints. I look at client complaints as an opportunity to build a better relationship with that client, you know, resolve it in a timely manner. You know, some people have unrealistic expectations and you just can't make them happy, but, and those are the clients that I want, but um, you know, a lot of good things can come from conflict. And veterinary professionals are so conflict avoidant. It's not even funny. It's <laughs> yes. not even funny. Passive yeah. aggressiveness, gossiping, like topics that always come up. Like, 
you got to embrace it. it it's going to happen, you know? Yeah. You know, it makes so. me think um, I'm really fascinated with theology and I don't know, I'm not Jewish, so I don't know if it, this is still the case, but there is a lot of great uh, Jewish theologians. And one thing that they talk about is this idea that when they go to synagogue, the Bible or the Torah or the Tanakh, cause they don't really call it the Bible. You know, it's not a, a, a rule book it's a problem that needs to be solved and we're going to go in and we're going to argue about it and we're going to hash it out. But when we leave synagogue, we're still all Jews and we're all kind of a one family under God. Right. And so I I think it's a, I think it's such a beautiful way to uh, approach life in that because I feel like we have really lost this idea. You know, like I had a, somebody who I thought was a really close friend. And again, I'm this person who just likes to, I'm very curious. And so I kind of like to challenge ideas and, uh, we, I kind of challenged an idea and, and he, he took it so personally until this day, I still think he takes it really personally, even though I tried to apologize six ways to Sunday where I'm like, no, man, I just really want to understand your position. Right. Um, but I feel that sometimes we've lost that as a society and a, a culture as a whole is this idea that we can really sit down and hash out ideas and not take it personally. Um, and a lot of times it becomes immediately so personal. So how can we, embrace conflict but it may make sure that with our staff or or with our practice that it doesn't become personal but it's just really hey we're just hashing out, out ideas yeah i mean i think that's a that's a great question that i don't think i have a an answer for i think you know thinking about myself um you know i just i i think conflict is necessary con you know i i i work real hard to not spend time and energy to avoid things that are unavoidable you know, I, I, you know, things that I have zero control over, I, I don't spend time trying to control them. You know, conflict is one of those things. And I just try to, I just try to lead by example, um, you know, and, and thank people when they bring up the opposite the side offense, try to understand, ask questions, be curious. You know, there, there are certain topics that I do avoid with, with friends just because they are so touchy sometimes, you know, religion, politics sports teams sometimes you just don't know how how passionate people are but you know i think i think it's such a challenging time i think you know if we were to try to do the same has the same question 10 years ago it had been a completely different answer so we have different generations we have different technology we have access to information you know um very strong opinions like it's um you know and and everybody is so different and that's the most exhausting thing of effective communication is tailoring how you're talking to how other people listen, you know, and, and, and getting away from that golden rule of treat others the way that you want to be treated in reality, it's treat others the way that they want to be treated. Right. And that's tailoring your communication style to them and, and so on and so forth. So um, it's a great question. That I, I don't think I have an answer for. What's that? Now I can hear you. Oh, you can. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. The deal is. <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> hey, it works. That's all right. IT problems, man. That's, that's why, right. That's exactly. Why, that's why you do what you do. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Although in this case, I don't think I really did anything. Although, <laughs> so who knows? Maybe sometimes they just had to touch it. But, but yeah, yeah. one thing that I was, uh, before we got disconnected there, uh, one thing I was going to say, uh, one person that I, you know, I love dearly is uh, Josh Weissman. Yeah. Because we, there's some, some topics that we may disagree widely on and we can, we will sit there and there's actually one day I feel bad for Craig because we were, we were all, we were all together. And then Josh and I got on this topic and 
Josh and I were just like hashing it out and Craig was just like walked out and wouldn't did work. But, but what is great is that I think what I love about our relationship is that we can talk about these really difficult ideas, but at the end of the day, we're still amazing friends and you know, it's never personal. It's just ideas and concepts and we can talk about it. And I just wish I would love to see more of that. Even if we, you know, we can make it happen in the practice or, maybe a society as a whole. I, I just think it's something that we should maybe embrace more as humans. Yeah. One thing that I, I, I really like Josh too. He's a, he's a great guy. And one thing that I've always noticed and I've been at a few dinners with him and you know, when, when he asks a question, he's generally interested and he's curious and it's not like this fake, like, Oh, you know, how's the weather doing today? You know, like he, you know, he met my wife for the first time at a dinner and he was just, he was asking great questions and he was genuinely interested. And I mean, I think, I think that's one thing you have to be to get past these challenging topics is really trying to understand the other person and where they're coming from. Um, even if it differs from, from your ideas and your experiences. And that's one thing that I think Josh does a great job of is just that curiosity, genuine curiosity. Yeah. And I think that's a great point is if we look at the staff of a vet, you know, at a vet hospital, there's a lot of diversity. I mean, you have everything from really young, people coming in that just love animals to people who are probably getting ready to retire and have been in the industry forever. And so you have this very different, you know, wide, wide spectrum of of people and opinions. And I think maybe that's the idea, right? I mean, maybe, you know, we talked about, well, we don't have the answer of how to solve this problem and allow there to be, you know, productive conflict, but maybe one idea is just embracing the idea of, you know, being curious about other people, you know, how can we help, help our staff or help people just be more honestly curious about the others around them instead of always so focused on our own selfish interests. Yeah. Especially in, in conflict, because in conflict, what you see and often what you hear initially is not the true story, right? It's just how this frustration or whatever's going on in this person's life is manifesting itself. You know, and I think that's how you truly get that empathy you know, and, and trying to understand where the other person's coming from. And that's, you know, I always say the moment that you treat conflict as a win-lose is the moment that you've already lost the conversation because there's no win-lose in, in conflict resolution. There's usually a middle ground or an understanding or, you know, something like that. So, um, yeah, that's one thing that I, that I strive to continue to be better at is really, um, you know, asking genuine questions and trying to understand where the other person's coming from. Yeah. You know, and, and to speak, you know, speaking from, you know, personal experiences, you know, I had this situation where I had, you know, somebody that I thought was, you know, kind of uh, like my partner in crime or um, somebody that I, you know, I thought we really, really worked really well. We kind of really complimented each other in my professional life. And then uh, I guess, you know, it was like, I had, this person had made the decision that I had done something that really offended them. And, and, but there was no, the only, the only thing I heard was it was pretty much like, Hey, we got to talk. This is it. There's no more like mm-hmm. we're done. And I've been thinking about this for weeks and I'm like, okay, well, if you've been thinking about it for weeks, why haven't you come to me? Right. right. Um, right. And there was just, and I think that's the, you know, as I think now being in a leadership role, I think that's, look being able to put myself in that other other in my you know looking back at that situation and then trying to understand like 
that's one thing that I always, I think I really want to embrace is that again, this idea that we're talking about where it's like really at least just listen to the other person. Right. You know, right. like Richard Branson had in one of his books, he had talked about when he had first started Virgin, there was this guy who was going around and, um, essentially he found out that he was kind of stealing records and selling them out from underneath, underneath Virgin. Right. And Richard Branson was like, most people probably would have just said, dude, you're out of here. Right. Um, and this is kind of an extreme example because it actually involved theft, but he was like, I sat down with him and I was like, what's going on. And there's something more to the story. I can't remember. I think it was like his kid was sick or something like that. And he really just needed the money and he didn't know what to do. And he made a really terrible decision. And so, of course, there were some ramifications for his decisions and, you know, Branson made him pay all the money back. But I think now to this day, he's like still one of the top executives at, at Virgin uh -oh. and has become one of his greatest employees. And uh, he talks about this idea. And actually, uh, Dr. Jewel Parker, uh, do you know Dr. Parker? Yeah. 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 So he had, he told me this story where uh, he had this young, younger kid that was working with him and turned out that he like stole money out of this lady's purse while she was in the exam room. And so he like confronted her on it. And they, again, it was the same thing. It was like, he's like, all right, well, how much money did you take? And he was like $18 and some change or something. And yeah. so when he asked the lady, the lady was like, Oh, he took $50 out of my wallet. And so then there was like this disagreement. So Joel, like, I think he gave her the 50 bucks or whatever, but then looking back on it, the lady came back. She's like, no, I really only think I had like 20 bucks or something in my uh -huh. wallet. But anyways, he like, it was this like really cool redemptive story. And it was this kid who was like kind of troubled. He ended up then, Dr. Parker's like, cool, well, you're just going to work this money off to pay it back. And then end actually, right. actually being a great employee. So it's like, we're all in our own unique scenarios and we make mistakes and like maybe you know in that situation when i looked at to make it a little you know be a little bit vulnerable hill i definitely made mistakes and i could have done something better but i really trusted this person i really liked them and i really thought we had a great relationship and i and personally would have done anything to try to make it right, right. but you know you if you're never given that opportunity right. you can't make make it happen um right. Yeah. So I don't know. I would, I kind of rambled there a little bit, but I would just love more of your thoughts on kind of this idea of, you know, what the second chance, you know, giving people right. a second chance or, you know, how do we, how do we really look at people and not just judge them for what we're seeing immediately? Yeah. I think, I mean, I think this all just boils down to empathy or, or a lack thereof, you know, not really trying to put yourself in the other person's shoes to try to understand where they're coming from. I, uh, you probably have seen, I made a great video with Vedios on veterinary empathy, you know, that kind of told the story and it was actually real veterinary professionals and, and that are in my clinic or I've worked with in the past and, you know, Vedios came down and, and filmed it at my clinic and, um, you know, really, sometimes I'm, I, I tend to be too empathetic, which I think is a thing. You can be too empathetic. You give people excuses uh, for, for their behavior. Um, but, you know, I mean, I do think that, uh, you know, like Richard was talking about, you know, putting yourself in the other person's shoes and trying to understand where they're coming from and maybe they do deserve a second chance. Um, you know, if they do it again, then, you know, it's, it's all over, but I think it's, you know, creating that, that trust, um, and that, that ability that, Hey, next time, I just want you to come and ask, or, Hey, next time, you know, um, just come and, and tell me what you need. Um, 
And I think that's how you build, you know, true relationships. But I mean, there certainly are people that, you know, they, they made up their mind and there's no changing it. Um, and it's their way or their highway. And, and that's really, that's really unfortunate because I don't think that's how you create a positive working environment. Um, you know, people, you know, this whole open door policy thing, well, my door's open. Well, that doesn't mean that people trust coming in and talking to you, right? That's, that's exactly open door policy. Like just having your door open doesn't mean anything. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a huge advocate of empathy, not only empathy for, for your peers, um, but also empathy for clients and, and what they're going through. And, and, you know, a client's yelling and screaming, why are they yelling and screaming? You know, what's, what's going on? It, it doesn't justify their behavior, but it helps you understand where they're coming from, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And again, maybe just, again, be, maybe coming full circle, this idea of coming back to just embracing this idea of learning to be curious, right? right? Learning to be curious about other people and what they're going through and, um, you know, the challenges in their life and, and, and how to get better, you know, yeah. and learning through their own, their experiences as well, maybe. Absolutely. Yeah. And at the, and going back to Josh, I think that's something that he is, he is great at. I mean, just the questions that he asked you and tell me like, well, this guy really cares, you know, it's not just, it's not just these generic questions. Um, and I think, you know, and I think that's how you make people comfortable with bringing up ideas. Like somebody brings up an idea, like be curious about that idea. Even if you think it's the dumbest idea in the world, ask them questions. You know, what, you know, how do you think this would work? Or, you know, what challenges do you think that you would face? You know, open-ended questions. And um, I think that's where you get true growth and understanding. So, you know, having gone from being like, you know, starting in a support role to, to managing a, in building an amazing practice to now being an owner in a practice, being able now to kind of put yourself in both sets of shoes and then also being outside third party, right. right. Uh, and, and working with a lot of different practices. I mean, th- I think you're really in this unique situation where you can really look at it from, you have a, the experience to look at it from multiple different angles. Um, have you ever looked back at a situation you know, and really realize like, man, now that I'm in on the other side or I'm looking at it from this perspective, I really wish I would have done situation X differently or now I understand yeah. that better. Yeah. I mean, there, there are times in my career where I burned bridges. There are times in my career where I blamed other people for things that I did wrong, you know, and, or things that I could have done differently. Um, there have been relationships that I've mended through the process and just given other people time. And, you know, I mean, I, I think, I think you grow, you forgive yourself and you just kind of learn things along the way and try to pass those along. And that's why I always tell, you know, young veterinary professionals never burn a bridge because you never know when that bridge, especially in this industry, it's a really small industry in the grand scheme of things. You never know when that bridge is going to come back around. And, um, you know, there, there are certain relationships that, um, you know, I, I had one of my very first mentors, he was like a father figure to me. Um, and he just pulled the rug right out from underneath me, which forced me, to move to Cincinnati to this large emergency specialty practice. I, you know, I made the best of it, but, you know, looking back, um, I hate that that happened and I, I'm not sure that there's anything that I could have done differently. Um, you know, but that's, it taught me to separate personal life and business life. You know, I, I, I mended those in my mind that he was like a father figure to me. So he would never from a business side, pull the rug out from underneath my feet. Um, so he made the decision that was best for his practice, which was not the decision that was best for me. Um, but, you know, I, I took that and I made the best of it. So, 
Yeah. So I, you know, maybe, I mean, talk about how, cause I think there's a, there's this idea that there's more power in forgiveness and it, you know, and talking back back to my own personal situations, there's been times where, you know, like I have felt I've been wronged and I feel like, you know, I'm like the best thing I can do is to learn to just forgive that person. Right. Um, and that's really, really hard to do. And I'm saying is that a per, you know, I'm saying that from personal experience that it is, there have been things that I've kind of had to read or look at that kind of reiterate this idea that um, it's not your job to judge. It's your job to, for, you know, forgive. And that's a really tough position to be in. And it's very, very hard to do, but I think that there is a lot of power in that, uh, in that idea or that concept. And so as you talk about this idea as somebody doing what's best for the practice and not necessarily what's best for you personally, right. how are you, because you say that you were able to kind of mend those ideas. How were you able to kind of build this forgiveness in your own mind and your own path? Yeah. I mean, it sounds a little cliche, but it was more for me than it was for him. You know, I mean, I, I'm a huge advocate of like, gosh, you have so much mental capacity each day. Don't spend it on things that you can't change. And like, I forgave him. If he ever called me and needed help, I would help him, but I will never put myself in that situation again. You know, and that's, that's where I think forgiveness meets growth, which is, you know, I'll forgive you, but we're never going to be in this situation again. You know, and I, and I've, and I, and sometimes I forgive people to a fault. You know, there are people in my personal life that I've, I've forgiven when nobody else was willing to forgive them. And um, I was judged for doing that, but it was for me. You know, it was for me, it was for my growth, it was for my conscience. Um, and, you know, I think, I think I, I would rather do that than dwell on it for the next months or years and, and suck that time away from me, you know. So it uh, sounds super cliche, but I think, I think you, have to, you have to do it for the right reasons. You know, and I think you're, you're 100% right. And I had never really thought about, thought about it that way. I was always thinking about it from like kind of a more of an altruistic idea. But when I think, of, and as you say that, and I, again, I think back to my own personal experiences, you know, in the times where it was really, really tough to forgive that person, what I realized is that you're right, is that it gave me the freedom to stop thinking about it right. and to stop thinking about how I was the victim and how, and having kind of this, uh, this victim mentality and why I, you know, why I'm right and why this person was wrong rather. And the moment that you can build that forgiveness, it's just, you, you do, you stop wasting that, that time on it. Um, there's this great uh, Hindu monk, his name is Danda Pandi, And he talks about this idea that a lot of times we need to look at life as if, uh, you know, we only have so much energy in a day, right? Like, so it's like we have this battery each day and we can give so much energy into certain things. And, there's a lot more, it gets a lot deeper to that concept. But as I think about it in this way, it's like, do I want to give 75% of my daily battery to, to just thinking about this thought, you know, where, where's that going to get me tomorrow? There's nothing I can do about it. There's nothing I can do. And so it's like this forgiveness allows you to just keep that battery charged to focus on better things and do. Things Absolutely. Better. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you gotta, you gotta pick your battles and you gotta pick what you spend your energy on. Um, I actually wrote a blog called the art of picking your battles and it's a little different, but it's, you know, it's about like, you know, my, my wife, I'm really good about letting things just roll off my back. Like if I can't control it, if it's not going to hurt me, I'll just let it roll off my back and I'll move on to the next thing. Like, you know, my flight's getting canceled. You know, if I'm in an airport and my flight gets canceled, like what can I do about it? Right. I can't, I can't fly the plane. Um, I can find my next flight. I you know, it's, it's more problem solving. Whereas my wife, like it just ruins her whole day. And I'm just like, 
why? You know, you can't control it. So, you know, it, it goes back to that whole, you have so much battery and you got to pick what you spend that mental and physical energy on, um, you know, and, and, and not only that, but also making sure that you have enough battery for your personal life too you know, and, and spending that with your family. And I think, I think that's where veterinary professionals get in trouble is because, you know, they don't look at work-life balance as a quantity quality thing. Um, you know, I don't have a lot of personal time cause I'm a workaholic. I love working. I love traveling, but when I'm off, I've learned to be off. Like it's quality of off time. It's not quantity of off time. So, um, and I think, I think it, it just all plays together and it's just learning uh, how to utilize it to, to, to reach the goals that you want to reach. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great, uh, I think it's a really great concept and idea. Cause one thing that I think about personally is, you know, like for me, I know that I'm not as good if I don't get my workout in. Right. So I'm not as good mentally. I'm not as good physically. I'm not as good emotionally. And a lot of times, sometimes that means I'm on the bike for two hours, right. Or, or, or maybe longer, but I, and initially, you know, for a while I struggled with this idea that it's like, oh, well, I've got this list of things that I have to do and I'm not going to be able to build this business if I don't do them. And I had to learn how to get over that guilt and realize that, no, it's this time, it is this time, it's this couple hours in the day that I spend here that's going to have a greater impact on, on really accomplishing that other task and really coming to terms with that. Um, and that's just one example in my own personal life where right. I can see the struggle and learning this idea to, to find that work-life balance. Uh, do you have any other tips or maybe tricks for people out there? Because I think one thing that I'm afforded that's a little bit easier from a lot of vet professionals is that I'm not tied to a brick and mortar building, right? right. So it, it's easier for me to hop on my bike for a couple hours, bring my laptop in my car and then dump in the coffee shop, have a coffee after my ride and, and get work done where if you're a doctor, you can't necessarily do that. You know, you've got a surgery at one o'clock, you have to be in the building, you've got appointments all day. What are, do you have any ideas on how to better maintain that when you are kind of tied to an actual physical location? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it really boils down to some simple things, which is, you know, take time off. You know, Dr. Figley, who wrote the first book on compassion fatigue and veterinary medicine, you know, basically says the only way to recover from compassion fatigue is to take time away from being a compassionate caregiver. But, you know, that demand of compassion on a daily basis. So, you know, taking your time off, not, you know, not popping into work on your days off to see how things are going because you'll get sucked in. Um, you know, to draw boundaries, you know, you know, after 6 p.m. every night, stop answering emails. If it's that important, they'll call you like that email can wait till the next day. You know, it, it's really what I've realized is it's these unrealistic expectations that we have put on ourselves, not that industry has put on us that we put on ourselves because we're perfectionists, we're caregivers, you know, all these things that you really, it's a, it's an introspective process. It's kind of stop pointing the finger at other people and point it at yourself and say, Hey, what things have I put on my own shoulders that I can take off that I can give myself permission to care for myself? Because as a veterinary professional, if you don't care for yourself, you're going to end up burnt out and leaving the industry going to have a heart attack and have a stroke, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. And you're not going to be in a place to help people. So, you know, it, it's, it's slightly different for everybody because everybody's in a different situation. Some people have kids. I don't have kids, you know, um, some people are a caregiver to a significant other that's sick, you know, so there's, there's a lot of different components to that, but you have to take care of yourself um, before you can truly take care of other people. And just like you're taking care of yourself so that you can truly take care of your business. Right. I, 
you know, it may be two hours away, but I, I'm, I can almost probably guarantee that you've come up with some great ideas or some thoughts while you're on that bike, you know, so it's not wasted time. You're taking care of yourself physically and you're taking care of yourself mentally. And that's, that's absolutely pivotal. And there's a, actually Josh of Faceman, he's, he's getting his degree in positive psychology. And that's kind of the whole premise of positive psychology is you have to take care of yourself physically and emotionally um, and really kind of change your perspective on situations, which is kind of what we've been talking about, you know, the whole wasting your energy and, and things like that. So, you know, it's really some basic things. I think people blow this concept of work-life balance up too big and it gets overwhelming. Like, Oh crap, Brandon, how am I supposed to take time off? I got all these things to do. It's not, it's not about quantity. It's about quality. You know, when you're at dinner, take your cell phone, put it in a different room, leave it on loud, right? You can still hear it if it rings, but it's not sitting right there and you're not picking it up and checking Facebook and checking your email and stuff like that. So it's small changes that really make a big difference. Yeah. That's a, uh, that's a great point. And you know, one thing that was kind of one, one thing for me personally, that was kind of a bit of a reliever is there's this guy, Brandon Burchard, and he wrote this book called High Performance Habits. And he studied a lot of the world's highest performers in business. And, you know, what are the things that they do? And now he's like, he's kind of like Josh in a lot of ways in that he's a coach and he helps people. Um, but outside of outside, you know, of course, he's not involved in that. Maybe he's over to some vets, but I'm not sure. But he has this one chapter in his book that the whole chapter is he's like, if you get one thing from this book, it's this. And he's like, get in the best shape of your life this year. Because if you, he's like, I can't, and he just talked, and then he gives a whole bunch of examples of why it's really important to take time to eat better, you know, be physically active, don't sit, you know, don't just sit all the time. And um, yeah, so it's like, you're right. But it, sometimes it takes an extenuating circumstance for you to be able to realize like, okay, maybe this is, is okay. Right. You know, and maybe, maybe right. that's fine. Um, well, so you, as have, we, you have to know the value of it too, right? I mean, you, there's a cost versus value of that. And then, you know, I always tell people, I can't change somebody that doesn't want to change. You get somebody, somebody that wants to change, but doesn't know how to like, you know, we can help them with that. But, you know, if somebody doesn't see the value of getting in shape or they think, oh, this is going to take so much time, it's not worth it. I love my snacks, right? Um, but gosh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's small things that make a big difference, even just exercising for 15 minutes a day. You know, you don't have to exercise for two hours, you know, um, just work your way in the right direction. Um, so, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to cut no, you. But I mean, no, 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 you're totally right. Um, and it, there's actually a... Uh, I mean, this is a whole nother topic, but just a quick note, you, you mentioned this idea of, of, you know, just 15 minutes a day. There's a actually uh, a longevity researcher that talks about the idea that sometimes, you know, a lot of times we think a lot of people, you know, they kind of hold my standards to what ex physical exercise has to be like, oh, I have to go out and I have to bike for an hour. I have to go run six to 10 miles. And it's like, no, that's just me. That's just what I enjoy. I enjoy the longer, slower endurance stuff, right? Um, but there is actually a lot of power in just being active for 15 minutes or maybe your, maybe your, your physical activity is gardening and, and that sort of stuff. So if you know, anybody listens to this and they're struggling with that idea, it, it doesn't have to be going to the gym. It doesn't have yeah. to be riding a bike. It can be really anything that just gets your body moving and gives you this, I get your heart rate up a little bit for a short yeah. amount of time will have massive impacts on your overall mental well-being and your, your health. Absolutely. And sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So as we get kind of towards the end here um, and start to land this ship, this is kind of the, the shameless self-promotion time. So, you know, is there anything, you know, where can people find out more about what you're doing? Maybe if they can, you know, if they need help in their practice or um, yeah, anything you want to kind of promote or get out there. 
No, I appreciate it. I mean, you know, our, our main website is vetsupport.com. Um, you know, if anybody's looking for resources on compassion, fatigue, or work-life balance, you know, just about everything that we've created is on vetsupport.com, um, specifically vetsupport.com backslash uh, compassion hyphen fatigue hyphen resources. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think I think as a consulting group, we're, we're great at what we do. We drive accountability and, you know, me specifically, I love the business side of things, but I love the the, the professional development side of things, you know, the compassion fatigue, the burnout, the, the practice culture. Um, and, you know, this, this helping practices change their concept from um, if my business is successful, then my staff are going to be happy when in reality, if your staff are happy, then your business is successful. Um, so the numbers are important, but your, your staff's happiness and customer service and all that stuff, work-life balance is, is just as important and that will take care of your business. Your business doesn't always take care of your staff. So, you know, I think, I think in a nutshell, that's, you know, that's, that's really what I'm, I'm passionate about. Um, and what I've spent a lot of time, I mean, last year, I, I hate this COVID stuff. We were talking about it before we started recording, you know, the, the lack of travel that I've been doing. But last year, I had 127 flights. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of that time was spent on not business stuff, but compassion fatigue, burnout, you know, self-care, practice culture. Um, and uh, there's a lot of data that shows that that translates to a, a profitable business. Yeah. And uh, I think, yeah, and to to wrap it up, I think you're to hear actually hear somebody that actually lost uh, an employee or a staff. I think really hit home for me because I think I hear about it that sort of stuff a lot, but I've never actually heard anybody that has actually had to deal with it that allows you at least allows me to kind of really put in different different perspective and different light. And uh, yeah, hopefully you know if you know like with people like yourself, not one more vet, care for the healer. Hopefully that you know there's again like Richard or. Uh, Brailsford always says, you know, who's, he's the team manager for team sky or Enios if you follow cycling, but you know, he's like, it, he talks about this, the, the change of the 1%, right? So if we can just make these little changes over time, these things that maybe only have a 1% change together, they may have an 80%, you know, Absolutely. impact. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, when it comes to a topic specifically like suicide, I mean, it's, it's uncomfortable, but the more that we talk about these things, the more that I share my story, um, the more likely other people are to be talk about it. And I think that's, that's the ultimate goal. That's why we're in the situation we're in as an industry with suicide is because we treat it with so much stigma. We have this perfectionist mindset and people aren't willing to ask for help, but the more we talk about it, the more people are willing to talk about it and more people will get help. So that's the, that's the whole goal. That's awesome. Well, thank you again. Sorry about the little bit of technical difficulties uh, there. We were back. We got yeah, back and uh, yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you for, uh, yeah, thank you for all. And again, thank you for all the support you've shown me and uh, yeah, being on the show and providing your input. And yeah, I can't thank you enough. Uh, you have definitely had a massive impact. So thank you. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me and, and uh, always, always willing to help. Awesome. Well, thank all you, right. sir. Enjoy the rest of the day. All right. Thanks, Clint. You too. Bye. Bye.